Before we get started, I wanted to thank Prevail Infoworks, the sponsor of today's podcast. Prevail Infoworks is the only global, full-service, tech-enabled CRO and e-clinical service provider harnessing historical and publication data alongside ongoing study data in real time. Get the most out of your study data and schedule a demonstration of this service for yourself at www.prevailinfoworks.com. And be sure to meet the Prevail team at the Outsourcing Clinical Trials East Coast Conference in May or at their offices in Philadelphia. Again, take a moment and explore their new look website at www.prevailinfoworks.com. Check them out. Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BioReport. That's deep dive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BioReport, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The marriage of synthetic biology to mRNA is creating the potential for a range of programmable therapeutics that can provide new ways of treating deadly and chronic diseases. Strand Therapeutics is creating a platform for developing these long-acting mRNA drugs that it says can be precise, multifunctional, and deliver potentially curative treatments with a single dose. We spoke to Jake Beecraft, co-founder and CEO of Strand, about the company's programmable RNA therapeutic platform, how it works, and the indications it's pursuing. Jake, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here. We're going to talk about mRNA, strand therapeutics, and its efforts to develop the next generation of messenger RNA therapies mRNA as a technology became front and center in the public imagination with the vaccines for COVID-19. My guess is, though, that most people don't understand the basic technology or its potential beyond vaccines. Perhaps we can begin with mRNA itself. What is it and, and what makes it compelling as the 
basics for therapeutics? It's a fantastic question and one I'm happy to answer. So um, th there's something in biology uh, that uh, uh, Jim Watson of, of Watson and Crick, uh, people probably remember from biology class, um, Jim Watson called the central dogma. And the central dogma is essentially that DNA, which a lot of people uh, know and remember learning about in school, uh, DNA makes messenger RNA. Messenger RNA makes proteins. Proteins are really the essence of life. Um, proteins are everything that makes up what you think of as your physical being. Um, and we can make drugs out of proteins as well. We've um, all sorts of things like antibody drugs, things like insulin um, are proteins that we can create synthetically and then inject them into the body. Um, why mRNA is such a breakthrough is that what mRNA really is uh, an information molecule. So you imagine that your cells contain DNA and they are the, the source code of your being. And then you have proteins on the other side, which are everything that makes up your physical uh, physical personage. Um, and in between, that DNA needs to needs to send a message to your body to make more proteins. Um, and in order to send that message, um, your DNA wants to continue to be in the nucleus, continue to be protected um, because you don't want to damage kind of the source code. And so it sends these messages out into uh, into its cells. Um, and that is in the form of this uh, information molecule that we call messenger RNA. You're a, a synthetic biologist by training. I, I think when people hear synthetic biologists talk about developing a therapy, they can sound more like engineers than biologists. One other concept I'd like you to explain is gene circuits. What's meant by that term? So that's uh, another fantastic question. Um, so what we're, we're uh, the way that your body produces all these proteins that I was just talking about, um, it, you have a number of genes and those genes on your DNA encode for proteins. Um, the thing about your body is that those genes are not always on. Um, really, you know, everything, everyone knows about how your stem cells differentiate into different types of cells, right? You have the same uh, DNA inside of your, your stomach as you do inside of your skin cells. Um, and so the way that your body is able to remember the type of cells or, or go down these different differentiation pathways um, is through something that is, is called, uh, is, is often referred to as a circuit. Um, it's essentially uh, the way that your body turns on and off different genes in your body. With synthetic biology, uh, what we found is that um, the, the underlying circuitry that underlies all of life um, is very similar. Uh, those circuits are very similar to how we think of computer code and how we can encode um, different sorts of programs um, through the through the use of different sorts of uh, different sorts of circuitry uh, and algorithms. And so, what we're able to do at the highest level is take natural uh, circuitry of how your your body processes genetic information um, and recode that in order to do things that are interesting. Um, from a therapeutic standpoint, right? And so uh, I guess the easiest way to think about it is um, you can think about a, a therapeutic, an mRNA in Strand's case. So um, in, in Strand's case, we build genetic circuits on messenger RNA, and that allows us to deliver messenger RNAs that, um, you know, they're, they're injected into your body. And maybe the, the point of that messenger RNA is to go into a tumor and actually kill that tumor so that you can be cured of your, uh, of your cancer. Um, and in order to, to do that, you need to be very safe because you don't want a, a, an mRNA that is programmed to kill 
um, ending up in you know your liver, for instance, um, and telling your liver to to kill some of its cells. And so what you do is you build a genetic circuit, and that circuit has three parts: it has a sensor, it has a processor, and it has an output. Um, and so if the output is that the cell kills itself. Um, and that the, the input could be biosensors that sense for um, whether or not it's a tumor cell. And so now, you have, and then the processing unit is the, um, is the actual circuit itself. And so what happens is the mRNA goes into these different cells, it goes into your liver and it goes into uh, the tumor. Um, and the biosensors pick up the, uh, the, the, what is going on um, inside of the cell. And then the processing unit, the genetic circuits make a decision. They say, due to what is what we're reading on our sensors, this is a cancer cell or it isn't a cancer cell. And if it gets a reading that it is a cancer cell, then the circuit's output becomes, you know, kill this cell. Um, and that can lead to revolutions in the way that we that we treat disease from everything from cancer to Parkinson's to uh, cystic fibrosis. So uh, it's it's a mind bending concept, but how good are we at programming today? Uh, genetic programming has been growing at an unbelievable rate. Um, so right right now, I would say. Uh, we are in. We are entering the the personal computer age. If we are going to overlay synthetic biology and biological engineering um, with uh, technological advancement of the late twentieth century, um, so if you think about like the early hacker clubs, things like uh, Wozniak and Jobs uh, met at a hacker club in the uh, in the seventies before launching Apple. Um, that's that's about where we're at, right? We're at where. Uh, we have a passive understanding of how these systems work. And we can start to actually string uh, pieces together, string different elements and circuit components together to, to make things that are very useful. Now, we're not making iPhones. You know, we're making uh, small personal computers that run on MS-DOS, essentially, and can handle some basic functions. But just like uh, computers at that stage were, you know, revolutionary in their time to automate certain tasks that were very time consuming um, and then led to even more advancements, which lead to, you know, the, the sorts of uh, crazy levels of technology we have today. Um, that's what the future looks like for, um, for synthetic biology and for really the, the future of uh, biological engineering. There are many challenges mRNA therapies present this has to do with how long they may last within the body, challenges of delivering them to where they need to go, ensuring that they don't go where you don't want them to go. How many of these challenges can be addressed through the programming of the genetic circuitry as opposed to other components that make up the, the therapy? So mRNA is an incredibly simple uh, molecule and drug product. Um, so if you think about the COVID vaccines for a moment, um, there's there's really two two components. There's the messenger RNA, which is uh, which is uh, you know this this information molecule. Your body is filled with messenger RNA as well. Um, it's a very transient molecule. And what I mean by that is it's very fragile. Um, so since it's an information carrier, um, it's almost like a Snapchat. It's meant to be seen or to to be made into a protein and then basically to disappear. Um, and that's actually what makes it such a fantastic paradigm uh, for therapeutics. You're able to uh, send a message to the cells, have the cells create a therapeutic protein that corrects um, that that either corrects something or or you know primes the body's immune system to be able to protect itself 
against uh, uh, against a, a virus like COVID, um, and um, and then it goes away and it's it's done its job. Um, the other component of the of the drug is just a, what's called a lipid nanoparticle, um, and so that's really just a layer of of fat. Essentially, a, a lipid is is just a fat um, that is uh, that that is formed around the messenger RNA, and that just helps protect it because again, it's it's very fragile. And so, in order to get you know into uh, into the cells, you need to have this uh, this protective carrier, and it, it is taken up into into the cells. So you only have those two components to work with, and so. When you're thinking about how to solve the issues of specificity, um, and really it's it's more with, with solving the issues of messenger RNA as a therapeutic, it's more about creating longer lived species in the body than shorter lived. Um, the the COVID vaccines uh, exist in in a patient's body for um, you know a day to two days at most uh, before they're completely eradicated. Um, just because your body is constantly turning itself over and it's constantly degrading things so it can continue to, to produce new things and respond to its environment. Um, and so when you think about how do you change a, uh, how do you take that technology and now use it to fix something where you need a longer lasting uh, expression, something like enzyme replacement therapy, where someone is deficient in, uh, in a particular type of protein or enzyme. Um, in order to do that, you you really have to um, you know innovate on the the messenger RNA molecule because again there's only two components there's the messenger RNA and there's there's the lipid nanoparticle carrier um, gene circuit technology uh, and synthetic biology allows us to both increase the duration of time that the mRNA is able to exist for so from a few days to maybe a few weeks. Um, it allows us to, you know, achieve higher specificity levels, um, so that the drugs are much, that, so that the drugs are even safer. Um, and and the technology can really, you know, the the sky's the limit in my mind of what we're going to be able to uh, accomplish with it. As you think about the the challenges of moving ex, an experimental therapy into the clinic, you know, where are the the biggest hurdles you have to overcome? Um, so, you know, with, with any drug, uh, drug development procedure, you, you need to be first, uh, very convinced of its safety. Um, so in order to get into patients, you need to be convinced of its safety. Um, but in order to be convinced that you should invest in this, uh, in this drug, you have to be also convinced of its efficacy. And so, so I think that the big advancement um, th that we're going to see with things like messenger RNA therapies um, is that every time, since it's a platform, right? Since every time we change the drug, um, it's still made of the same uh, molecular makeup, right? It's still messenger RNA and a lipid nanoparticle. Um, it actually lowers the bar of, uh, it lowers that safety bar. And so now like as, as Strand Therapeutics is a company, we plan to enter the clinic next year with our first drug. Uh, but after that, um, you know, every time we enter the clinic with a new drug, it brings that, that safety barrier down because now we, we know that the last thing we did was, was safe. And now we've made a slight change or we've changed a little bit of the, what we're going after, um, you know, and how the FDA will uh, will respond to that sort of uh, uh, breakthrough in how we build drugs um, is uh, is still up for debate. I think that by increasing the speed at which we're able to develop drugs, though, we'll be able to also uh, drastically reduce the cost of development. And by reducing the cost of development, we then reduce the amount of investment it takes, um, and it'll lead to both an increase in innovation and a decrease in the cost of drugs. 
you mentioned you're using nanolipid particles as a, a vector for these therapies. One of the problems with nanolipid particles is, is their specificity, their ability to target precisely where you want them to go. How much of a challenge is that? And does the use of a gene circuit allow you to work around that problem? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's the, that's the value proposition right there. Um, so uh, a lipid nanoparticle is, uh, uns- uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily 100% specific. There are different sorts of uh, lipid nanoparticles that you can use um, that can go to different tissues and different sort of uh, distribution percentages, right? You can have some that, that mostly end up in the liver. You can have some that mostly end up in the spleen. You have some that, you know, you can make mostly end up in the lung. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a distribution and it's not uh, overtly specific. And so with, uh, with the power of gene circuits, you can actually complement those two technologies together and say if you have a, a lipid nanoparticle that, you know, 70% of your drug goes to the spleen um, and say you're, you're targeting the spleen with some sort of a therapeutic, then you can make a genetic circuit that only expresses in the spleen. And by marrying those two technologies together, you now have delivered a sufficient amount of drug to the spleen, but you've reduced the amount of what's called off-target activity by engineering messenger RNAs with gene circuits that prevent them from being active in other, uh, other tissues such as the liver. Uh, that's really the, the value proposition there. So you, you bring those two together um, and between their, their distribution and the, the specificity of the genetic circuits, you can have a complete specificity in, in delivery of the active particle. When you've got a platform technology with as broad a potential application as you do, to me, one of the biggest challenges is prioritizing indications you're going to pursue. Strand is initially focusing on immuno-oncology. Why start there? That's a that's a also a, a great question. So where where we first started was where can we have the most impact right now? Um, so the the science around immuno oncology uh, has actually become incredibly robust in recent years. We know that certain uh, proteins, certain protein drugs, uh, things like cytokine therapies, combined with uh, checkpoint inhibitor drugs, for instance. Um, we know that those drugs can be incredibly effective uh, at, at treating tumors through an immunotherapy approach. The, um, the real problem with a lot of these drugs comes from their, uh, you know, their pharmacokinetics, how the drugs move around the body, um, how long they last in the body, uh, and, and then their toxicity, right? When they, start to, when they start to move or they're you know, administered into the bloodstream, you have these proteins floating around. That are meant to stimulate the immune system, you end up overstimulating immune responses and, and leading to you know incredible toxicity and, and even death in a, in a lot of cases. And so, um, taking an engineering approach, we thought that the bar was lowest uh, where we could have the biggest impact immediately um, in immuno oncology, um, and use that uh, also as a way to get our therapeutic um, you know into into patients um, to provide value to those patients and also to provide value. To the company, because as I mentioned, every time we go into the patients uh, with it with this therapeutic, um, we become more and more convinced of its safety, um, and so that that obviously takes a, an incredible amount of risk off the table. It leads to higher investment for the company, which we can put towards making new therapeutics uh, for more patients. Strand's not expected to be in the clinic until twenty twenty two. 
as you start thinking about dealing with regulators, how does the experience with vaccines change the regulatory landscape? Do you think given the broader use of mRNA vaccines with COVID and the fact that there's greater comfort among regulators than there might otherwise have been makes it an easier discussion? I, I absolutely think so. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's always the, the unknown, right? And, and I think that one thing that's important to drive home, especially when we're thinking about the vaccines and, and people's uh, thoughts on the, the safety relative to the, to the fast timeline that these therapeutics were delivered, um, they should know that, you know, the FDA uh, is uh, always errs on the side of caution. Um, and so, you know, I think before COVID, uh, there was, you know, there was knowledge that mRNA was a very safe molecule as a drug paradigm, uh, but there wasn't, you know, billions of data points. Um, now, post, uh, post-vaccine, uh, you know, hopefully we're going to be seeing, uh, we'll, we'll have known that, you know, likely the regulators that we'll be talking to directly uh, will have gotten mRNA injections themselves. And so um, with that sort of in hand, I think it, it, it lowers the bar. I mean, of course, we, we still need to be incredibly diligent in, uh, in forecasting our, our safety. But with a new platform, um, bringing new platforms forward is, is always expensive because you need to really uh, convince the FDA and other regulators that what you're doing is safe. Um, and so, you know, having this sort of advancement, having this sort of acceleration of, uh, of, of data that will show just how safe uh, these therapeutics are um, really brings, I think, the, the conversation home. Um, and it means that we're having more of a conversation about what we're actually doing with our therapeutics, how we're activating the immune system against cancer, for instance, rather than having to talk all about um, rather having to also then double our work because we also have to talk about the platform itself. In January, Strand and Beijing announced uh, an agreement for developing and commercializing your immuno-oncology mRNA treatments for solid tumors. This is a deal for China and certain Asia-Pacific markets that provided you with $5 million up front and a, an additional $28 million in near-term milestones with a total deal value of up to $277 million plus tiered royalties. Why Beijing, and, and how do you see this deal accelerating your own work? Um, yeah, Beijing is a, a wonderful collaborator. Uh, I think that um, we were looking for a partner that could help our first drug access uh, the Chinese market. Um, so we we develop our drug in the United States and in other countries that we're very comfortable or that we're very knowledgeable and and working in and and know the the pathway forward for commercialization. Um, and uh, but but you know the the Chinese market is a is a different animal. As a global company, I think we want to be able to get our drug into as many people as possible. Um, and so Beijing presented an opportunity to both you know uh, you know capture deal value you. Uh, you mentioned kind of some of the economics uh, of that deal, which I thought was, uh, you know, which were, you know, incredible accelerators for our R&D pipeline as a company, getting that money into the company at such an early stage. We were less than two years old um, at the time that that deal was struck um, and having that money in-house uh, really accelerated those efforts. Um, and then further than that, it, it led to um, it, it led to this collaboration with a group that is highly experienced in oncology uh, drug development. 
And so being uh, able to, you know, sit across the table from people who have put, you know, a double digit number of oncology drugs into clinical trials and be able to talk to them about, you know, what the strategy of, of different clinical development is, those are sorts of resources that an early stage company just doesn't have. Um, and, you know, being able to work with someone like Beijing who can help us access new markets as well as help us, uh, you know, oversee some of our, our strategy um, is incredibly valuable for an early stage company. And, um, you know, and then, you know, the, the economics are really just the, the, the cherry on top. Beyond immunotherapy, how do you see the potential for what you're doing, being able to reconceive the idea of gene therapy? So... The idea of gene therapy, and, and I define gene therapy pretty broadly, right? It's the idea that you can you can take a gene and add it to a patient in a, in some sort of a a, a safe uh, safe manner, but in in a way that it it helps with a, a disease, either with the protection or the the treatment of a disease. And so, messenger RNA as a gene therapy platform is incredibly interesting, um, really because it's temporary. I think that uh, messenger RNA going in and and fixing different sorts of uh, uh, fixing different sorts of um, uh, diseases uh, that that may arise um, is just so incredibly it's just an incredible breakthrough opportunity um, to you know not get into the realm of genome engineering which I think for some diseases is also coming things like hemophilia and such uh, deep genetic diseases that need to be fixed at the genetic level um, you know, we we can focus on there with other sorts of technologies like CRISPR, but messenger RNA allows us the opportunity to, um, to, to take temporary approaches, which could have, you know, permanent solutions to diseases that completely ruin people's lives. Um, and, you know, things like developmental disease, um, you know, spinal muscular atrophy being one of those uh, diseases that I think is just, is just awful. Um, other diseases like that can be treated with messenger RNA um, in a way that doesn't require actual genome modification in, in any way whatsoever, um, but still leads to uh, a lasting curative uh, effect. Jake Beecraft, CEO of Strand Therapeutics. Jake, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.